All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews, 7th chapter. Join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning once more at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet it is far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment because of his weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding as we consider what it means that Christ has come. That you would let us understand the things that he brings and the things that he delivers, and the things that could not be accomplished according to the Old Testament law. We pray, Father, for clarity. We pray for wisdom. We pray for power and strength to refute the many times that people attempt to enslave us to the law again. God, we ask that we as the people of Christ would never grant the power of anything that Christ has done to anything that is not Christ. Lord, let us jealously guard his work and let us jealously guard his power and his truth that none would steal the glory that is his. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and for the sake of all that he has done, and all that he is. Amen. Amen. So we've been thinking about what I've termed to be a bag of blessings that comes to us in Christ. The things that are the experiential divide between the Old Testament priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. And as we enter into the Christmas season, I want to continue to focus on that theme but I want to shift it just a little bit to focus a little more on the impact of his coming. And I want to begin this morning with the reality of joy. There was very little in the Old Testament priesthood which spoke of joy. All of our entrances to God were bought with the blood of the innocent. And the whole system was designed to keep us at a safe distance from God. Close enough to worship when commanded, but far enough to escape destruction. But of joy, deep and profound. Of joy, strong and insurmountable. Of joy, empowering and uplifting. Of joy, beyond us and within us. Very little was known in the Old Testament. But in the coming of Christ, joy is both the commandment and the reality. It is the flavor of our experience. And just as his life is ours, his joy is ours. So I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. There, there were instances of joy in the Old Testament. But almost always they were circumstantial. They were either circumstantial by what God had done, 
for they were circumstantial by what God had set in place as a commandment to remind the people to be joyful. So, for instance, when David slew Goliath, 1 Samuel 18, 6 tells us that the people were joyous. When David was installed as king, 1 Chronicles 12, 40 tells us the people were joyous. When the ark was returned to Jerusalem, there was an overwhelming amount of joy. When David installed Solomon as king, there was joy. When Solomon dedicated the temple, there was joy. When Jehoshaphat overcame the people and, and, and had a great victory, there was joy. When Hezekiah um, lived out his days and honored, honored God and had reforms to bring back the worship, there was joy. And at the temple's dedication, the second temple, the temple of Ezra, there was joy. When Nehemiah stood and read the law, there was joy. When Esther um, was used of God to deliver the people, there was great joy. Do you notice something here? It, it's always in connection to the good things that God has done. There's, there's no real account of them living in joy when things weren't so good. There's no real account of them living in joy when things were hard. There's no real account of them walking in a way um, which was just a, a, a joyous experience of what it was to belong to God. Now, I mentioned that there were times of joy that were prescribed. And so there was sort of this external forcing of joy. Look with me, if you will, please, to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 talking about one of the feasts, and we're going to take just one um, as representative of the whole. Um, but we're going to start at verse 39. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feasts of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, and all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So we have here the, the celebration of tabernacles or booths or tents. So God's command to us is you have to go camping at least one week a year. <laughs> and you have to camp in tents. Because if you're camping in an RV, you're not camping. <laughs> These feasts could never bring about the fulfillment of the promised joy. Okay? They were put in place to remind the people to rejoice. They were put in place to remind the people, I'm going to build some things into your lives that will bring me to mind, that will bring my work to mind. And again, notice that these things are connected to what God has done, not to any real enjoyment of who God is. They, they could never bring about the joy because they were not the fulfillment of the promised word. And they have passed away completely from the lives who follow after Christ. For in the end, 
to follow after the Old Testament covenants of days and feasts and Sabbaths and all of those things that were woven into their structure of worship, it is to say that Christ has not accomplished what he has actually accomplished. If you bind yourself to those things and make them mandatory, that you will observe all of these feasts and all of these celebrations and all of these Levitical laws, what you say is that those things still have their power, which was merely to look towards God fulfilling his promise. You deny Christ when you do this. You deny him when you bind yourself to it. Because understand this. God commanded these things because the people did not walk in joy. The Old Testament law could not bring them joy. It could not bring them what he had promised them. It could not deliver them out of the darkness of their lives. And it could not deliver them out of the bondage that they were under because of sin. What was the cost of sin? What was the consequence for sin? Death. Death. Separation from God. Separation from every good thing. And no matter how hard we try on our own strength and by our own work, we cannot in any way or at any time manufacture a relationship with God based in what we do. We can't. It's impossible. Even the very law of God, which he himself gave and ordained, could not do it. They were designed to point them forward to what God was going to do, which was, by the way, promised to deliver them from the bondage of sin and death. Isaiah chapter 28 or 25 verse 8 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. You see, in the end, everything that God did in the Old Testament law was to point us forward to Christ. So that we would understand that he has actually accomplished in Christ what he set out to accomplish. And so it becomes very important for us to understand that the things that we do cannot fulfill our deep longing for joy. Now, this matters to us in today's age because often we look to things to bring us joy. We, we shop, or we go on experiences, or we have activities, or we go camping, and we do all these things that we do, and we say, if I can just do this more, I will be joyful. But all we're doing is we're, we're throwing mud into a giant crack that is never going to be closed up with it. Because the lack of joy in a life is directly connected to the lack of communion with God. There is a direct correlation. And the less you walk with God, the less you delight in his, in his presence, the less you know him, the less joy you will experience. Now you may have happiness. And, and happiness is always connected to circumstances. When circumstances are good, happiness is high. And when circumstances are bad, well, happiness takes a vacation. It goes camping for a week. <laughs> and you don't get happiness when things are not the way you want them to be. But this is not how joy functions. Joy is the work of God which gives us a solidity in him. It gives us a steadfast comfort even in the midst of things not being well. And that's something that the law cannot ever produce. 
Because the law could not restore us to a right relationship with God, who is the source of our joy. What was the greatest commandment, according to Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind. Joy is the outflow of a relationship based in love. When you walk with God, when you know God, when you love Him with everything that you are, joy is the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in you. The law could not do that. For the law could never remove the consequence of sin. It could never remove sin. And yet, to do what God tells us to do, it is the actual expression of the joy that was supposed to drive that. They were commanded to love God. And they were commanded to love God as the outflow of the joy they were supposed to possess. Not to bring them joy by their obedience. Although if we love God and walk in truth, it does bring us joy. But that's because he's already established us in himself. It couldn't accomplish this. And interestingly enough, although there were times of circumstantial joy and times of commanded joyful activities... There were precious few moments that were based in the joy of God, and ultimately, this is what they were judged for. Look at me at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. And we're going to look at um, verse 47. Deuteronomy 28, starting at verse 47. It says this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain, nor new wine, nor oil, or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. This is a dire sort of prediction. And this is what God says is going to happen. Because instead of trusting in God, and instead of delighting in God, the people of God chose instead to lean on their obedience to the law. Which is the same thing that many try to do today. They try to make their way enough, their work sufficient their obedience to the law, their adherence to the Old Testament laws, their adherence to the Old Testament feasts, their adherence to the Old Testament ways of doing things. And what we need to recognize is that although the moral law of God stands forever, because it is a direct reflection of the nature of God, the Levitical law of the Old Testament has been satisfied, completed, and set aside in Christ. God does not expect you to not eat pork. God does not expect you to adhere to the Old Testament rituals of Sabbath. So not, not Sabbath, but the, the, um, 
the feasts and the celebrations and the obligatory days. The Sabbath is still applicable in some form because it is part of the Ten Commandments, and we've talked about that on other occasions. But you need to recognize the truth that even your obedience to following the Sabbath and giving a day unto God is not going to save you. It's not going to make you right in God's sight. It is, it is an adherence because we delight in God. We want to spend time with Him. And when we spend time with God, when we delight ourselves in God, when we are, are turned with our hearts and our minds and our intentions towards Him, the outflow of time with God is joy. The outflow of time with God is the very thing that we seek. And in the end, what we find when we look at the Old Testament, we have these constructions that are designed to remind people of joy. And there is promises of joy that are given throughout the Psalms. The Psalms are, are filled with the truth that loving God should be a very joyful thing. Psalm 511, let all of those who rejoice, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let also those who love your name be joyful in you. Or Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 35, 9. My soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. Psalm 63. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Or Psalm 89, 15. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. The psalmist understood that joy was supposed to be in the offing. That joy was supposed to be what happened when the people of God walked with God. So let me ask this question. Is joy what happens when the people of God walk with God? Amen it is. Where was the problem with Israel? Well, they weren't walking with God. They were obeying the outward structure of the law because somebody forced them to. But what we find over and over and over throughout the Old Testament is that the very thing that God gave them to bring them a path to repentance became for them an idol. The priesthood of, of, of the Levitical line, the priesthood of Aaron, became for them the thing that they trusted in rather than the God who gave it. And it became something which was so profoundly embedded in them that when God himself stands before them in the person of Jesus, they call him demon-possessed. And they decide that he must be put to death for the things that he says. I don't think that they understood who God was. But in the end, are we any better? Many times not. Many times we ourselves become so fully wrapped up in our opinions and our ideas that we lose sight of what the scripture tells us and what Christ himself has revealed about who God is. It's important for us to be always asking, Lord, am I walking with you? Am I, am I delighting in you? Or am I merely delighting in the circumstances that you have brought to me that allow me to feel good in the moment? It's a subtle distinction, but it's one that we have to recognize. Because the temptation to walk in a way that is contrary to God is part of our fallen nature. The temptation to delight ourselves in things rather than in God is, is part of what caused the fall in the first place. Now, 
The prophets rebuke Israel for not having joy. Throughout the Old Testament, we find in all of the prophets a rebuke that the people are not delighting themselves in God. They're not enjoying His presence. They're not loving Him as they should. But they also promise that joy will come from God Himself. And that God will guard them in joy by His own power. So just a couple of passages to look at. Isaiah 49, 13. Isaiah 49, 13 says this. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have mercy on his afflicted. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, but I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. I find it fascinating that God promises in Isaiah that he has inscribed Israel on the palms of his hand. And I can tell you exactly what that name looks like. It looks like nails. He has inscribed us on the palms of his hand. He has inscribed us into his own flesh by the nails of his crucifixion. This is the mark of God's intention to save people. This is the mark of God's determination that no matter what, he will accomplish his goal. Look at me at Isaiah 51. Get forward just a couple of chapters. Starting at verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, even I, and he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid? I love that. Who are you that you should be afraid if I have determined to comfort you? Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of man who will be made like grass? Will you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared, and the Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the harvest, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. You see, God promised that no matter what happened, he was the one ultimately guarding Israel. He promised that no matter what happened, he was the one who absolutely was assuring that his work would be accomplished and that his people would be brought into his own household. This is the work of God. This is the promise of God for his people. And ultimately, what we have to recognize is that the Old Testament priesthood could not accomplish that work. The Old Testament priesthood could not in any way complete the work of bringing us into the presence of God. It was designed to keep us out of the presence of God. What had to happen was something new. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is laboring to tell us 
in Hebrews chapter 7, that the Old Testament priesthood could not accomplish it. It had to be replaced. There had to be something new. And that something new was the person of Christ. That something new was God coming to be made flesh. And this is exactly what Jesus was attesting to when he was arguing with the Sanhedrin, and he told them that Abraham rejoiced at seeing his day. In John chapter 8, verse 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And at this moment, they say to him, Who are you to tell us about Abraham? You haven't even seen 30 years. And Jesus replies, Before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to kill him because he just declared that he was God in the flesh. You see, what Jesus came to accomplish was the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. Every single place where God said, I will give you joy, but our hearts betray us, and our desires betray us, and our affections betray us, and all the things that we want betray us. And the very system that was designed to bring us some sort of relationship with God, if we do not keep it directly, 100% in perfect focus all the time, it also betrays us. So in the end, what we find is that God came to earth to fulfill his own commandment and to complete his own promise. One thing that Jesus accomplished when he was here was absolute obedience to the law of God. We think about Jesus never sinning. That's enough to boggle the imagination that he would go an entire lifetime from the time of his birth until the time of his death and never sin at all, not in the slightest fashion. But that's not really the largest part of what fulfilling the law of God is about. Fulfilling the law of God is ultimately about obedience to the commandments of God. And I'm not just talking about the Levitical rites and ceremonies, which Jesus also fulfilled, by the way. I'm talking about a return to what is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And we could add to that just a little bit to capture the flavor of it and say, for all of your time. There's never a moment when you are permitted to not be loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So just think about this for just a moment. Jesus came and accomplished that. And he also fulfilled the second commandment, which was like unto the first, in that he loved his neighbor as himself. And he did everything that was right and everything that was proper because in the end, the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth was God's insertion of himself into human history to accomplish what had to be accomplished in order to provide promised joy. You understand that? Jesus came to give us what God had promised. Jesus himself applied the passage that we read together earlier this morning from Isaiah 61. I'm just going to read a few verses out of it, but I want you to hear what Jesus says. Isaiah 61, starting at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn in Zion and to give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. 
that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Let's get down to verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and a bride adorns herself with the jewels. And when Jesus read the first three verses of Isaiah 61 in the hometown of Nazareth, he closed the scroll, and he was silent for a moment, and then he spoke to the people of his own city, and he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is another instance when they tried to kill him. They took him to a cliff outside of town and tried to chuck him off. And the scripture tells us that Jesus hid himself from them and parted through their midst. But I want you to hear the truth of it. Jesus was telling them exactly what God was doing. He was telling them that he came to fulfill his promise. That he came to absolutely fulfill the promise and the commandments of God and to grant to his people a source of joy. And this is the crux of our hope and joy in Christ. This idea that we have been given a heart that rejoices in God. Again, verse 10, just hear it. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Beloved, we've been given a heart that delights in God, takes joy in his presence. And that reality is the promise given to God's people for the entire course of the Old Testament. But it was never made plain to them. It was never delivered. It was promised. It was hinted at. It was shadows. It was never realized until the coming of Christ. And in the end, joy is the immediate response of all of creation in the presence of God, especially among those among whom God is at work. We didn't read the passage just a little bit beyond where we stopped reading about the announcement of Jesus to Mary. But when Mary went and sees Elizabeth, goes and sees Elizabeth, as soon as she comes into the presence of Elizabeth and, the, and the, her voice is heard, the babe leaps in her womb for joy, Elizabeth said. At the coming of her Lord, not Mary, but the babe that Mary was carrying. My, my, my heart, my, my baby leapt in my womb at joy in your coming. Verse 44 and 45, For as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. See, joy is the promise of God. And the announcement of God at the birth of his beloved son was what? What, what was the first words to announce the birth of Christ? Do you remember? Look at Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. 
For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. This is the announcement of the birth of Christ. He has been born, and it is joyous. In the end, we have to recognize that a heart that knows God, a heart that loves God, responds with joy when God comes into his presence. We must. When God comes, we rejoice. When God draws near us, we rejoice. Because joy is the gift of God unto us. He himself gives us joy at the reality of his own presence. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is because Jesus is our joy. Look at me at John chapter 15. And I want you to hear how Jesus describes his own work in the lives of his disciples. John chapter 15, we'll start at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, so that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. It's more than an outward thing, this joy. It's more than a circumstantial garment to be worn and then discarded when circumstances change. Joy is the internal character of God imparted to those who belong to him. It is a product of the Spirit of God dwelling within his people. This is why the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22, is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. It is the outworking of the Spirit in us that produces joy. Now this is so profoundly true that it is even more pronounced when our circumstances are not as we would like. The joy of the Lord is unsurmountable. It is unconquerable. It is the product of grace being worked out in the soul of the believer. 
we may not always feel the joy. So don't become confused by the fact that I don't feel too joyful at the moment. We are always being washed with it, however, by the Spirit of God who dwells within us. It is never completely removed, even when we lose our way and focus on the circumstances. God still reminds us of the presence of his joy. And sometimes, beloved, he takes the circumstances of our lives and twists them up on us so that we might remember this truth. Listen to how Peter describes the process in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Regarding this, John Owen writes, It is that inexpressible satisfaction which is wrought in the minds of believers by the Holy Ghost. From an evidence of their interest in the love of God by Christ, with all the fruits of it, present and to come, with a spiritual sense and an experience of their value, their worth, and their excellency. This gives the soul a quiet repose in all of its trials, refreshments when it is weary, peace in its trouble, and the highest satisfaction in the hardest things that are to be undergone for the profession of the name of Christ. It's sort of what Paul is speaking of in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, beginning at verse 1, Paul speaks of this very thing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. We rejoice in these things, because it is the hope of Christ in us. The knowledge of our own transformation into the likeness and the character of God. And it is the absolute reality of that glory, the abiding presence of God, dwelling among us and imparting to us His own joy, that is the fulfillment of His purpose in sending Christ into a rebel world. He has redeemed us for the sake of his own glory. And he will never let us fall, and his life is the life which we need. It is the hope and the grace upon which we stand, and it is the absolute power of God revealed to us and in us. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we'll start at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen. We bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father, and which was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, 
And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Do you notice the flavor of, of what John tells us Jesus said in John chapter 15? And what Paul tells us is, is the essence of our joy in Romans chapter 5. And what John is attesting to here in the, in the reality that he's expressing in 1 John chapter 1. What's the thread that binds all of these things together? It is the presence of God in the midst of whatever we're facing. It is the reality that the fullness of our hope and our joy comes from the presence of God. It is God dwelling in us that is the entire issue that we have to pursue understanding with all of our hearts and minds. You see, every single time we end up crosswise with the joy that God promises, it's because we are looking to something other than the presence of God to be our joy. It doesn't matter what we're facing. It doesn't matter how dire the consequences, how dire the circumstances, or how small the circumstances. When we allow things to disrupt our joy, when we allow things to disrupt our, our peace of mind and our hope and, and the reality of just exactly where we're abiding in Christ, what we're actually testifying of is that we have focused our attention on those things rather than on our God. Either their absence or their presence, depending on whether you're talking about good things that have gone away or bad things that seemingly have come to stay. But you see, what God tells us is that regardless of what our circumstances may be, his presence is unyielding and unswerving. He is always with us, for he always abides in us. It is not as if the Holy Spirit comes and goes. It's not as if you never have the Holy Spirit unless you've given this second blessing or you've been given this weird thing. It's not as if God ever calls somebody to be his own child without giving to them the gift of the Holy Spirit to take up permanent abode in them. The Holy Spirit always dwells within us. And as the Holy Spirit always dwells within us, the Holy Spirit always yields His fruit because His fruit is the result of His character. Just as the fruit of the Spirit is a result of the character of God. This is the truth of where our joy comes from. It's why it is unassailable, because it is the output and the outflow of the very person of God dwelling in us. Beloved, over everything else that you do, do not lose sight of this. Do not lose sight of the fact that whatever the circumstances might be, the God who controls the circumstances dwells in you. And that is the source of your joy. That is the source of your hope. That is the source of your comfort. That is the source of your peace. That is the source of everything that God gives us in the coming of Christ. Which is why in the Old Testament, everything kept people out of the presence of God. But at the death of Christ, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom to allow us into the presence of God. And it will never be established again. There will never be a time where anything will keep the presence of God away from his people. For the Holy Spirit has been given to dwell in us. And no matter what they do to us externally, 
They can never take away that which makes us who we are. The Spirit of God dwelling in us. What we have to fight for in our own minds and in our own understanding is a consciousness of that so that we cease to look to our circumstances to be our joy. Now, I'm not telling you not to enjoy your life. I'm not telling you not to give thanks for all the good things that God gives you. I'm certainly not telling you not to delight in some of the trappings of this season as we think about the coming of Christ. We'll have opportunities to hear songs together, to sing songs together, to read scripture together. We'll have gatherings when we celebrate together, when we promote joy among one another. In your homes, you may have Christmas trees, you may not. In your homes, you may have decorations, you may not. But all of the time of this year is designed to remind us that God kept his promise. And that Christ came and that he abides. And you do not need to give yourself over to the fear that celebrating Christmas makes you an idolater or that not celebrating Christmas makes you a heathen. We need to remember that there should be grace among us in all of these things. But more than that, we need to remember that the purpose of all of it is to give Place in our hearts to remember Christ. It's not that Christ leaves us when we don't. But if we put our attention on other things, we give those other things the power to block us from understanding our truth. And beloved, that ought not to be. Christ came that you would have joy. And the fellowship of God with us is the source of and the purpose of that joy. And ultimately, this is the work of God through Christ being formed in us. Because the more Christ is formed in you, the more you delight in God. Amen? Amen. The more you delight in God, the more joy is a reality in your life. Amen? Amen. And the more this happens the more Christ is honored by how you do these things. This is why God receives the glory of salvation from start to finish. Only God could have accomplished it. Only God could take rebels that hated him and turn them into sons that love him. Because at the moment that you cried for mercy, up until the point that God called you to life so that you would cry for mercy, you hated him with every fiber of your being. It is God's mercy that makes you his child. And it is God's mercy that turns you unto himself. And it is God's mercy that will keep you in his hand and continue to provide for you joy and hope and purpose. Jude chapter, or Jude verses 24 and 25. Chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. You see, our God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us with exceeding joy into his presence. And I want to close with this thought for you. You may not be feeling your joy today. There may be circumstances that are keeping you from being joyful. But here's what you need to know. God is able to restore it and to keep you joyful 
in the midst of all that you do. Let his joy be yours. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day, that you would teach us to love you and to honor you, to obey you. And God, help us to walk in faithfulness to all that you have commanded, that Christ would be honored in us. God, we ask these things so that we might have the joy that has been provided by him. But more than that, we ask these things that our joy might be a testimony to those who do not yet know you, who have not walked in truth, that they might see the light of Christ and be transformed by his grace in us. We ask it that Jesus would be honored. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.